all this sheer nonsense of this woman who goes around. She says, I have Holy Ghost goosebumps. That's sick. It's perverted. That's twisted. Jesus is calling. He's not calling for you to write down in the first person like he's dictating. Oh, God's sending me a text message right in the middle of a prayer. And Lord, let me tell you what the Lord's saying. That is arrogant. That is man-centered. It is evil. It is wrong. And it is inconsistent with the written and holy word of God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church, Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, we are in chapter 17, verses 7 to 18, and a message entitled, The Woman and the Beast. Our title comes from verses 4 and 5, which talk about part of a vision had by the Apostle John, which includes a woman clothed in purple, having a gold cup full of abominations and unclean things of her immorality. We saw that this signifies a heretical one-world religion that will come into play during the tribulation. Then the verse goes on by addressing a name written on this woman's forehead, and that name is described as a mystery Babylon. Last time, Dr. Brogy gave some reasons why this city could not be the Babylon of the Old Testament. Let's rejoin him as he develops that idea. Remember, this is mystery Babylon. And by definition, a mystery is something that is in the Old Testament, concealed, but in the New Testament is revealed. The fact in verse 5 that he writes, a mystery Babylon, or some of your texts just say mystery Babylon, singles us that he's using a symbol that will need to be interpreted. In fact, John uses the identical terminology in Revelation 11 and verse 8 when he speaks of Jerusalem and he calls it the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt. Now, there are only two cities in all the Bible that are called the great city. One is the city of God, Jerusalem, the most mentioned city in all of the Bible. The other is the city of man, Babylon, the second most mentioned city in all of the Bible. And just as Jerusalem is the city of God where the true Christ will someday rule from, Babylon in Rome is the city of man in which the Antichrist is going to rule from. And so Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, in his first epistle, said in the 13th verse, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Peter here is giving some passing salutations from the believers from the church in Babylon, which was a pseudoname in the first century for the city of Rome. We use code names all the time. When we speak of Wall Street, we're talking about the city of New York. And of course, it's not by accident that uh, Babylon is a name for Rome because it was a time, it was a city much like old ancient Babylon of great size, of great splendor, of great decadence, of great evil in terms of their morals. And just as ancient Babylon was used to smush the temple there in the uh, city of Jerusalem and carry away God's people for 70 years into captivity, even so the city of Rome persecuted the early Christians, and in 70 AD, they ultimately decimated the city of Jerusalem. 
And so it's not by accident that every single one of the church fathers in all of their writings, the church fathers are these godly men who lived after the apostles died and they wrote a whole lot of things. In fact, the entire New Testament can be replicated just from the writings of the church fathers as I covered for you in the course that we taught on bibliology. These were godly men who were much in tune with the Scripture, and every single one of them says that Babylon in the first century was a nickname for the city of Rome. And sometimes you would call it that for your own protection. You didn't want to speak against the Roman government, so you spoke against Babylon. And by the way, one of the earliest commentaries ever written on the book of Revelation refers to Babylon as the city of Rome. Not to mention beyond the church fathers like Osenius and Arrhenius and Tertullian, all of the reformers, Martin Luther and John Knox and Wycliffe and William Tyndale, they all said that Babylon in the Scripture in the New Testament referred to Rome. Not to mention, look what he says down in verse 18, the woman whom you saw is, circle that verb, is, not will be, is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. This verse tells us that the woman is both a false religious system, but she's also a city, just like the beast. We saw it refers to his person, but it also refers to his kingdom. And please note, he says specifically, she is the great city. That is, this is a city that is functioning and operatable in 95 AD, which immediately removes the suggestions like New York or Hollywood or other places. In addition, he describes this city as being built on seven mountains, on seven oros, seven hills. Now, sometimes in our modern-day terminology, we impose in our thinking and sometimes upon the Scripture uh, a definition to a term that is not faithful to the Scripture. For instance, when I take people to Israel, one of the things that often amazes them is that the Sea of Galilee has no salt water in it, that it's a lake. Well, you should know that anyway, because it's also called in the New Testament the Lake Gennesaret, and it's also called the Sea of Kenneth and so forth, but, or the Tiberias Lake or the Tiberias Sea of Tiberias. But it's a, it's a lake. But yet the Jewish people and the Romans use the term sea to refer to both large freshwater bodies and large saltwater bodies. We go to the Mount of Olives, one of the most significant and important places on the face of the earth. This mountain from which Jesus ascended into heaven, the mountain at the second coming, he will literally come back to. You say, that's a mountain? Looks like a big hill to me. Because oros means a mountain or a hill. And it is used in first century Greek of a large hill or even a great and mighty mountain like Mount Heron. So he's referring here to a city that is built on seven mountains or seven hills. And so he says in verse 9, notice, here is the mind which has wisdom. The truth that is being presented symbolically needs to be interpreted correctly. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. This great city is built on seven mountains, seven hills. And that's why Victorinus, who gave us the very first commentary on the book of Revelation that has been found, identifies this as Rome. Here's a picture of an ancient Roman coin from the time of, of John. It is, you see here, a picture of the goddess Roma, and she is seen sitting here on seven hills. 
Here's a map. Originally, Rome was, had seven small mountains or hills along the Tiber River, and their name, Palatine, Aventine, Salian, Equiline, Viminal, Querimal, and Capitoline. And so when you make Babylon New York, it's ridiculous because New York, number one, is not built on seven literal hills or mountains. It was not in existence. And this is a city that is in existence when John writes, there's only one place in all the world that can fit the criteria. And it is a city that had great sway over peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Put out in the margin, here's another reason why we know it's Rome. Put out in the margin next to this verse, Revelation 18.20. I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but let me read it to you. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you or on your behalf or for the way she treated you. God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Now notice, apostles is not apostle, but it's plural. He is describing a city where the apostles and the prophets and the saints were martyred. We just read that this place was filled and drunk with the blood of the martyrs. And there's only one city in all of church history in which more than one apostle was martyred in, and that is the city of Rome. Peter was martyred there. Andrew was martyred there. Jesus' half-brother, James, was martyred there, and some believe Peter was martyred there. But it's the only city that fits the criteria. And certainly it can't be Jerusalem, because notice what Revelation 18.21 says. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Mystery Babylon, this coming place, a real city where there'll be a worldwide religion has an expiration date. There's no expiration date for the city of Jerusalem. Messiah, when he comes, will literally rule there for a thousand years. Now, let's read verses 9 and 10 together. Stay with me. This is not the milk of the word. This is the meat. Gird up your minds for action. Don't drift. Stay with me. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other was not, has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. Now, please note. Not only are there seven heads considered to be seven mountains, but they are also considered to be seven kings. And just like we studied earlier in Revelation, when you see the term the beast, it can either refer literally to the person or it can refer to the kingdom that he represents. When I say Hitler bombed England, I'm not saying Hitler got in an airplane and pulled the, the hatch to open the bombs. I'm saying that obviously the German Air Force bombed England. And so when he's describing this place, he's describing not only an actual person, but he's describing an empire of sorts. And so now the angel tells John that the seven mountains also stand for seven kings, where five are said to be fallen. One is, meaning he's currently alive, and then there's a seventh king who has not yet come. 
Now, when does John write the book? We have a firm date. He writes in 95 AD. And by the time he writes, five great kings or five emperors had already sat on the throne there in the city of Rome. Not by accident, only five. Caesar Augustus, Caesar Claudius, Caesar Caligula, Caesar Tiberius, and Caesar Nero. And when he writes in 95 AD, Caesar Domitian is on the throne. He's the one, if you remember, who exiled John to the Isle of Patmos from where he's recording this great revelation. And yet there's another one that is coming. This seventh king is further described in verse 11. Notice, the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. So he's the seventh beast. He comes on the throne in this revived Roman Empire, but he dies. And then he comes miraculously out of the grave, empowered by the evil one. And so in another sense, he's like an eighth. He goes into the grave a human. He comes out of the grave a superhuman because he's a human who's empowered by the devil himself like no one has ever been. Verse 12, the ten horns which you saw, mentioned back in verse 7, are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour, a short time. The beast not only has seven heads, but he also has ten horns, which represent ten kings. Now, if you remember, when the first sealed judgment came, the uh, first horseman of the apocalypse comes on a pale horse. He mimics Christ. He comes as a man of peace. He has no arrows in his bow, and he comes with a peaceful conquest of the nations. And we've already studied in Daniel and in Revelation that there is coming a revived Roman Empire that will be a coalition of ten nations that will come together. So while there are seven heads that chronologically represent successive rulers, there is also ten horns that represent ten kings, ten contemporaneous nations that are ruling together under the puppetry of the Antichrist. Verse 13 precisely tells us. These, these ten kings, have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. And who would do otherwise but to give him authority, this super man of Satan? Verse 14 indicates these will wage war against the Lamb. We'll study that in chapter 20. Can you imagine that there's going to be a coalition of nations that are going to try to uh, fight off Christ and his army that is going to come from heaven. We'll see how they will learn that. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And so there in the campaign of Armageddon that we've studied, that we will look at in depth in the 20th chapter, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings is going to come, and he's going to crush Satan and his Antichrist and his false prophet and this coalition of nations. The beast will be, in essence, smushed and cast into the lake of fire. Now, one more point, and I'm just about done. Beyond the beast who comes to carry the woman, and beyond the beast who comes to the city of the woman, finally, there's the beast who comes to destroy the woman. The beast comes to destroy the woman. We're told now in verse 15, and he said to me, the waters which you saw 
where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. He's going back to verse 1. The woman sits on many waters, but now he describes this symbolically what it means. It refers to peoples and nations and multitudes and tongues. And so here in these future days that will be at the end of time during the great tribulation, the apostate harlot religion of the world that will hold sway over the whole world is going to be crushed. This Babylonian monster is going to turn around and to destroy the Babylonian mother. Verse 16, and the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Simply put, the honeymoon between the beast and this one world government stationed out of the city of Rome will be over. Now, John doesn't tell us when this is going to happen, but Christ does in the Olivet Discourse, as does the prophet Daniel. It is going to happen right in the middle of the tribulation. So in the first half, you have this one world religion. But in the middle of the tribulation, after the Antichrist comes out of the grave alive supernaturally, he is going to go into the temple and present himself as God, and he'll have nothing to do with this one world religion that is led out of Rome because he wants his own one world religion. Why? Because he wants to be worshiped. Listen to these verses from Revelation 13. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war against him? Satan has always wanted to be worshiped, and he will get his wish They will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her up. He is going to destroy that. He'll have no patience for this one world isms of the world brought together. Verse 17 tells us that God is working this for a purpose. Look at verse 17. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. They are carrying out the purposes of God, just like Nebuchadnezzar came down and destroyed Judah, and then God destroyed Nebuchadnezzar. Just like the Assyrians came down and destroyed the 10 northern kingdoms, then God destroyed Assyria. And just as these 10 nations are going to destroy this one world government, it is according to the purposes of God, and God will ultimately destroy Now, God is working everything together for good, and God uses even the evil of men to praise Him. God is never the author of sin, but He can use sin in a sinless way, and this coalition of ten nations are only accomplishing His purposes. Now, we'll look at verse 18 next time. We're out of time, so I won't go there, but let's talk about how this applies. Three applications in closing. Number one, Don't ever forget that Satan is not against religion. He is for it. Satan's not against religion. He's very much in favor of it. When the devil slithered into that garden, remember what he said to Eve, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. What was the devil telling Eve? He was saying, I'm going to tell you how you can be godly. I'm going to tell you how to be godly though my way. 
This was not a temptation to fall down. This was a temptation to fall off. Satan is not against religion. He often uses religion towards a worldwide purpose that he is accomplishing in the world. You say, how do you protect yourself from this? There's great deception that is happening today. There's only one way. You get your mind and your head in this book. And if you are a dad here today or a single mom, you're the family shepherd, and it starts with you. And on the Lord's Day, you ought to say, we're not going to watch Pastor Brogy in the living room while we sip iced tea. We're getting up, and we're going to church, assuming you're not sick. We're going to get up, and we're going to be with the people of God on the Lord's Day. And some of you, when you leave this community, especially our Marines and Navy personnel, you need to be sharp and alert as to what kind of church to look for, and we'll help you if we can. And it's essential that all of this nonsense that's being peddled across the American pulpit of entertainment and soft preaching be obliterated, and that men of God do what Paul says they're supposed to do in Titus 1.9. They're to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he, the pastor, will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Hold fast. You can't do that in a 15-minute sermon. You've got to decide if you mean business. I am telling you, there is evil that has opened, is just pouring across America. This week, I was so disheartened when I saw Walmart with that three-minute commercial come out promoting these two gay men in the aisle of Walmart making a decision over a purchase. In your face, evil like never before. Listen, the evangelical church needs to be in the Word of God, and we need to put the Word of God as our highest authority. All this sheer nonsense of this woman who goes around, she says, I have Holy Ghost goosebumps. That's sick. It's perverted. That's twisted. Jesus is calling. He's not calling for you to write down in the first person like he's dictating. Oh, God's sending me a text message right in the middle of a prayer. Let me tell you what the Lord's saying. That is arrogant. That is man-centered. It is evil. It is wrong. And it is inconsistent with the written and holy word of God. A pastor is to hold fast to the faithful word. Why? That he might be able both to exhort in sound doctrine... But here in the evangelical church in America, we've put experience over everything. And we are to be sound in doctrine that we are able to refute those who contradict. And that refers not just to the pastor, it refers to the person in the pew according to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. You need to get into this book. And not one of these 10-minute daily bread devotionals. I'm not against that. Let that be a three-minute break at lunch. But you need a time where you are in the Word of God. You can be on your Facebook. You can be on your TV shows and your Instagram and everything else. But you don't have time for this book? No wonder we can't impregnate our children with truth. Second. It would be simplistic to say that the woman in the passage, and this passage represents only the Roman Catholic Church. By the way, that is a common error that many evangelicals make. 
It's obviously that the Roman Catholic Church is moving towards ecumenicism, as I illustrated for you last week with the last three popes, especially the pope who's in charge now. But just remember, Christ died for the pope, and he died for some seven, eight hundred, they say maybe even one billion Roman Catholics who are alive, many of whom have found Christ, myself included. When you speak truth, into the heart of a Roman Catholic, a church that denies all five of those solars on this stained glass window. They deny every single one of them. When you speak truth in the heart of a Roman Catholic, make sure that you speak to them as a person, as someone for whom Christ loves and for whom he died. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if the Vatican headquarters, kind of a country in itself, becomes the actual capital, the actual physical location where the Antichrist rules. But it's going to be all of the isms of the world, Buddhism and Taoism and, and, and Hinduism and Jehovah's Witnessism and any ism you can think of. They're all going to come together under one umbrella. But we need with compassion to share the good news with them. Third and finally, you just need to make sure that you're a part of God's kingdom. We read earlier from verse 8, those who dwell on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Their names were not written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. Why were they not written? because they didn't want them there. And if you want your name there, it can be there. But there's only one way, is you must change your mind about sin, that it is horrible, it is evil, whether it's self-righteousness or adultery or drunkenness or vaping or jeweling as so many. We had someone jeweling in our bathrooms last week. And I don't know what they were sucking on, They come to a a place where the people of God meet and they're sucking on some drug. Listen, you better repent of your sin because unless you repent, you perish. You come to Christ with your sin as, as evil and it needs to be forgiven and changed and it can only be changed through the blood of the cross. Now, our Father, thank you today for this book that you've given us, that it tells us what you are doing in the world, what is happening in the world, and what you are going to do in the future. Help us to pay close attention to it. Help us as dads, as grandfathers, as moms, that this word may first be in our heart, that we might teach our children as we walk in the way, as we rise up and as we lie down. I pray today, Father, for someone listening to me who's really not sure that their names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. Help them to settle it today. Help them to see that Jesus paid it all. Completely, they're dead on a cross. If they will bring their sin to him, he will forgive them and change them and give them a new life. Thank you that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Help someone today, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, save me, and then give them the courage to confess it before men. 
And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's study from Revelation 17 entitled, The Woman and the Beast, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program REV49. We are praying for an end to the COVID pandemic and making tentative plans for another trip to Israel in October of 2021. To get a preview and to be notified as details begin to come together, visit our website at searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow we move into Revelation 18 and a message entitled, The Fall of Babylon the Great. Join us then as we search the scriptures. (music) 